Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Well, good morning, friends. How are you doing? My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. How many of you are thinking you wish you'd skip this Sunday now? I know some of you, I nearly sent out a little warning, like I nearly sent out a PG-13 rating. Um, And then I thought, no, I know some of these people. Suddenly, a rerun of The Office will be really compelling on a Sunday morning, and we won't see them. And now you're here. Uh, So now if you get up, this spotlight will shine on you. And this voice from the sky will say, you're free to leave, but would you mind telling us why? Um, And and that's how we roll. Um, This is a difficult uh, conversation. Um, it's one of those things that, that, that I always insist that every, every teaching, every sermon has some kind of levity to it, some kind of humor. It's just important. It gets people in this place where they're like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to hear something now. Turns out there are no good jokes about adultery. It just doesn't exist. Last week, you guys laughed at murder. Um, and now we're here and I'm like, I don't have anything to bring which perhaps speaks to some of the heartbreak of some of the subject uh, that we're gonna cover today. Uh, And now, if you have uh, scriptures in front of you, I'll read them in a few moments, and you'll see a heading, and it might say adultery in the heading. Uh, But but in actual fact, just like last week when the heading was murder, uh, and the subject was anger, uh, this week, the heading may be adultery, uh, but the subject is lust. The subject is something deeper, something a little bit more pervasive, but but let's make sure we're on the same page as to where we've been. Uh, I would suggest that throughout his time uh, uh, on earth, Jesus is constantly inviting people not to follow rules, uh, but to a transformed heart. He's inviting them to an experience of him that is fundamentally changing to the heart within, that leads you to live in a different way, that leads me to live in a different way. This is an illustration we've used a few times. Jesus is this center, and he's pulling and calling everybody to himself. And to do that, he doesn't say, be better, be a better human being. He says, come to me and be transformed. Come to me and be transformed. And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, there's there's a couple of things that we might say about it, things we've said before. Amy Jill Levine says this, the Sermon on the Mount is a beginner's guide to the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus' way of being human. And and so the challenging question we get to wrestle with is this, this is do I trust Jesus' way of being human? Or, Or do I think I have a better way to be human? Do I think I'm smarter than him? or am I willing to accept what he says? Because the other thing is that it's also this guide to human flourishing. This is the best way to live. There are other ways to live that might be easier. There are other ways to live that might be less challenging. And yet over and over again, Jesus essentially says, yes, come to me to be transformed, but when you are, live the way that I have called you to live. And, and you know what this is like. How, how many of you, have, if you, if you have kids, have said something like this? You have a house and you say, this is the rules in our house. This is how it works. Now, now, what are you wanting them to do? Are you wanting them to live by a list of rules? Probably not. 
What you're actually hoping is that they enter into the life and the culture of the home. In my home, we watch Michigan football, and we watch it proudly and passionately, especially when they're winning 49-0 or whatever it was yesterday. In my house, we're passionate about specific things. And of course, there'll be times when my kids joyfully, in some ways, and sadly, in other ways, go off to set up their own home. But, But there's a culture piece at play there in most homes, and Jesus is doing something similar here. He's setting up what you might call an ideal polis, an ideal city, and says this is how people treat each other. This is how they interact. This is how people with transformed hearts come to live in my kingdom. And and so last week, as we talked about murder and found that it was really about anger, I said to you this, don't just address your anger, address the thing beneath your anger. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of stuff underneath anger, and I heard from lots of you said, I'm wrestling with some of those things, and I see it come out in these toxic ways all the time. But there was one thing I couldn't find on there that maybe is implied, but never stated, that I think central to anger in lots of ways is this word. It's fear. Just yesterday, my my five-year-old son Jude ran through our garage with nothing on his feet. Now, in some of your garages, that would be no problem. That's fine. In my garage, this is like, a, this is like potential of death. There's stuff all over the place that, that could kill a man. And so he, he skips over nails by a hair's breath, and I yell, Jude, get out of the garage with your feet bare. And he looks at me like, what have I done wrong? And I said, Jude, you know I wasn't angry. I was just scared. I was just worried that, that, that you might get hurt, and I reacted to that in that way. The connection between fear and anger means that this guy was right all along. <laughs> if you wanted wisdom, you just had to go to Star Wars. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. If you are a guy who's been trying to convince a loved one to watch Star Wars with him, uh, then now you have some reason. Like, like we're going to learn wisdom together. This is good advice. This piece is maybe less good. Trust your feelings. Trust your feelings, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the great (laughs) Jedi master. This seems less good to me. As we push into this place where Jesus talks about adultery and then yet underneath all of that, in the same way that fear and other elements are below anger and the same way anger is below murder or beneath murder, we're gonna find that lust is underneath adultery and lots of other things. Uh, somewhere that feels to me to be wrong. And so we get to push into this deep conversation and ask Jesus, what do you have for us as a community? So let me read to you from this text and take a deep breath and prepare yourself. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. If it wasn't bad enough to gouge it out, you also have to throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus, as we wrestle with this, 
you're probably already wrestling with us. And you know the ways that our hearts are warped, broken, the way that we need uh, deeply for you to speak to us. And so what I pray for this community, for me, for each of my friends, is that this would be a place of challenge, of conviction, yes, but of no shame, because shame does not belong here. Because shame, you know, is that moment for us where we say, we are bad, we are worthless, we are nothing. And you don't say that about us. You say that in your core, you are made in my image. And I invite you to come to me for transformation and to live a life of human flourishing. Amen. We're in this cultural conversation uh, where we're talking a little bit about some of the ways that we interact with each other in, as human beings, especially in the area of sexuality. I found this quote as I was preparing this. It, it made me curious. Uh, this was a, a random person on a website. Her name is C. Joy Bell. I don't define lust as anything evil or nasty. Lust as defined by me is the feeling of desire, a desire to eat cake a desire to feel the touch of another skin moving over your own skin, a desire to breathe, a desire to live, a desire to laugh intensely like it was the best thing God ever created. This is lust as defined by me. I think that's what it really is. On one hand, there's a potential that we get to define that. There's a potential that that's an accurate understanding of the human condition. Uh, and then there's the more traditional view, the view that many of us might say is our view, even if it's hard for us to live into it at times. This is John Foreman, uh, the musician. Greed, envy, sloth, pride, and gluttony. These are not vices anymore. No, one, no, these are marketing tools. Lust is our way of life. Envy is just a nudge towards another sale. Even in our relationships, we consume each other, each of us looking for what we can get of the other. The, the difference between the two points out the tension, right, between two ways of looking at the world. One, what do I desire? What do I want? What, what feels good to me? And the other that says maybe there's a bigger conversation there. My favorite Saturday morning cartoon growing up is this one. Uh, I just love so much about the nuances. This was the first cartoon in my understanding that, that came to think of the cartoon world as having rules. There's nine specific rules about how Wile E. Coyote, a genius, can interact with Roadrunner who only says meep meep. Roadrunner cannot harm the coyote except by going beep beep or meep meep, depending on your accent. Uh, no outside force can harm the coyote, only his own ineptitude or the failure of the Acme project, product, products and on and on. But the third one is the one that I would pause on. Uh, the coyote could stop any time if he were not a fanatic. He could stop at any time if he's not so consumed by his desire or his belief in his desire for Roadrunner that he could stop, but he finds that he can't. And the question that lurks over this whole cartoon is, well, what happens if he does catch Roadrunner? Because you've got the episode the next week, right? And if Roadrunner's gone, is it just Coyote hanging out in his own genius doing nothing? The, the brilliant guys at Family Guy actually imagine what would it look like 
if he did catch Roadrunner. And so they created an episode where while he does catch Roadrunner, he, he catches this pesky bird and finally kills him. And then he invites over a friend coyote and they sit together and they eat Roadrunner. And his friend says to him, so what are you gonna do now? And Coyote has this look of horror appear on his face. And he says, I don't know. I'm not really trained for anything else. And the next day, he's kind of sat there picking the carcass. The second day, you find him with the skull note in the same way we hang antlers on the TV, drinking cheap liquor. He goes to work in a fast food restaurant. He finds that he has no purpose anymore, even though he got everything that he believed that he wanted. Oscar Wilde brilliantly said, in this world, there are only two tragedies. One is not getting what one wants. The other is getting it. The last is much the worst. The last is the real tragedy. And this reflects on our desires, our conversation around lust, what we think we want and what we think will make us content, what we think will make us happy. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, in his letter in the New Testament says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You cover, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. The challenging part about this, this sort of gauntlet of scripture we're walking at the moment is all of the things we're reading about are deeply interrelated. Anger and murder are deeply interrelated with adultery and lust, which as we get to next week are deeply related to divorce. They, they all actually could be taught together if it wouldn't just take three hours of suffering for all of us to get through. It's a complicated conversation. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian writer, has a brilliant scene in Crime and Punishment where one of the characters who has become an assassin sits in a room with one of the characters who is a prostitute and together they read scripture. And in that moment as they read together, Dostoevsky beautifully says, and a dim candle lights the room where an assassin and a prostitute just read the book of books. They find this common struggle between them, this common brokenness between them, and they meet in the voice of Jesus, the beautiful invite that says, whoever you are, come to me and be transformed. Marcus de Sade said this, lust is to the other passions, what the nervous fluid is to life. It supports them all, lends strength to them all, to all ambition, cruelty, avarice, revenge. They're all founded on lust. So as we talk about this somewhat difficult conversation that we have ahead of us, what are some myths that we might say we need to clear the way of? Because I would suggest around this subject there are a load of myths. The first one is this, this is a male problem. That would be like saying that men are taller than women. Is it generally true or often true? Yes. Is it always true? No. So if you're a woman in the room that says, this has been a distinct struggle for me all my life, what you might say is this, I've never found good resources on this. There's never been a place for an honest conversation on this because the assumption is this is only for guys. Now, now the text we just read is directed to and teaching guys, but all over the rest of the New Testament, this is unpacked as a common struggle. This is broader than a male-female thing. This is a human thing. Myth number two, this is a male problem caused by women. <laughs> Perhaps you've heard that language before. 
Perhaps you've been in the youth group where some youth pastor comes over and he took three fingers and he puts them on your shoulder to check that your, your, your shirt is thick enough to cover your shoulders. Perhaps you've been in the conversation where you've been told you can't wear specific types of clothing. Perhaps you've been through some of that trauma where, where the emphasis has been, if only it wasn't for you, the guys would be doing just fine. Myth number three, this is a male problem that can't be helped. And that's just not true. We'll get to some of that in, in a little bit. And perhaps myth number four is that this just doesn't actually matter. What stays in your mind uh, stays in your mind. It's just like Vegas. Your mind is Vegas. What happens there stays there. And yet, it seems that Jesus would disagree with that. So here we go, back to the top of the text. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus quotes an old law from the Old Testament, from the 10 commandments, Exodus chapter 20, you shall not commit adultery. The covenant of marriage in first century Israel was a sacred thing. Two people came together and to break that was to break a covenant. To take away a wife from a husband was to destroy a covenant. And the most common metaphor that God uses in the Old Testament scripture to describe his relationship with his people is of a marriage. The emphasis behind all of it is, is that, no, don't break that. We'll get to some of that next week when we have our delightful conversation around divorce. And if you don't come again next week, I'll know why. Jesus says, as almost every rabbi would say, do not commit adultery. He will reinforce that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Last week, as we talked about murder and anger, we talked about a common practice of rabbis of this time, which was we're going to build a fence around something. We're gonna take a fence and build it around the thing we're really trying not to do. For murder, I had a kid's club or bat. I bought a pillow for adultery. It felt like the safest option. Um, I wasn't sure what else to bring, to be honest. <laughs> Didn't have any of the things that uh, could have been here. And, and so they, they would take something and they would build a fence around it by asking this. What is the thing that we need to not do in order to do the thing we're really trying not to do. If the goal is not adultery, what will stop you getting there? If the goal is not to murder, what will stop you getting there? What's the thing that will help us not do the thing we're really trying to do? If that is what Jesus is doing here, that is not particularly unusual or special in the first century context. It's pretty standard rabbi work. Rabbis did this all over the place. You can go back, you can read manuscripts. But here's the thing if you're new to South. Uh, we have this, I think, idea that is fairly broad amongst us that Jesus is, yes, savior. He is God in human flesh. He is uh, this great gift to the world. He is one that we're in personal relationship with and encouraging everyone to be in personal relationship with. But also, were convinced that he's actually a fairly, no, 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 not fairly. He is a brilliant teacher. He is a groundbreaking, life-changing teacher who sees things that nobody else has seen before. And I would suggest this is at play here. There's different readings that you might have of Matthew 5, 28. I threw a different, few different uh, translations up here for you. But I tell you, if you look at another woman and want her, 
you are already unfaithful in your thoughts. The message version says, don't think you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those oogling looks you think nobody notices, they also corrupt. And I think this gets to some of the heart of that. Jesus isn't just saying, if we build this fence, then people will stay out of each other's beds. Jesus is saying there is a way of thinking as a human being that is deeply corruptive of the heart and is actually damaging to you and to society as well. So that requires some unpacking because again, you could be reading this whole bunch of guilt already. So I wanted to go back and just say for a second, what is Jesus not saying here? What is Jesus not saying here? Jesus is not saying when you see someone and are attracted to them, that is a sin. Uh, A few years ago, 20 odd years ago now actually, it's incredible, it's been 20 years. A friend of mine asked me to go out to Spain with him. He was going to meet his dad for the first time. And so we went out, we were both following Jesus, both working in a church at the time. We went out to Spain to Alicante and I'd never been before, excited to go. And during that time there, they said, do you wanna come to the beach for the day, so we got together and we went down to this pristine Mediterranean beach and we just hung out, just enjoying the sun. And while we were hanging out there chatting and I had someone to my right and someone to my left, and remember, I'm a good guy who's trying desperately to do what Jesus asks him to do, or I think he's asking me to do in this passage. And while I'm sat on the beach, a group of Spanish girls about our age came and sat in front of us. And then they got up and began to play volleyball in front of us on the beach that I'm sat on trying to be a good Christian guy. (laughs) And so everything inside me wants to stare. And everything inside me moves very quickly from their attractive girls to their attractive girls that I can't stop thinking about to I wonder what it would be like to dot, 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 dot. So for the next hour, my torment was such that my conversations looked like this. Chatter, 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 chatter. All the way over there like that, talk, 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 talk. I just did everything I could to avoid what was in front of me because I believe that's what Jesus was asking me to do. If you've been in a space where you've come to believe that the moment you are attracted to somebody else, you've committed some kind of sin, that isn't what Jesus said. I'm not even sure that's possible. Physiologically, there is something going on inside you that says this person is an attractive person and I am attracted to them. There is something there that we've been taught at times, this is what Jesus is saying, don't do. And it's especially for a whole bunch of guys been a a thing that may be even just impossible to. Uh, There's a great book that's been written recently called The Great Sex Rescue. Uh, And they talk about how there's this fear-based model of arousal and therefore lust. It goes something like this, DEFCON 5, the lowest rating, there is a woman. (laughs) DEFCON 4, you notice her body. DEFCON 3, you find her attractive. DEFCON 2, you feel tempted to lust after her. DEFCON 1, lust, and this is this buildup and trauma for guys, this sense of like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I've got to just ignore everybody in front of me to make sure I don't get to DEFCON 
one, going the wrong way. What it actually leads to is this. A whole bunch of guys, because they felt like they were doing the same thing, and I say mostly guys, but not just guys, who have treated women like non-people because they're terrified to look at them. During this book, she writes a story about how uh, her daughter was uh, training to be, uh, sorry, no, she, her daughter was a uh, coach for athletes. She was very good at what she did. She was a brilliant coach. And so a family asked if her daughter would train their daughter. And when they turned up, the, the guy, the father of the, the girl that wanted training, refused to look at her daughter for the entire meeting, even though she was the reason they were there, she was the person whose expertise they wanted. And when this was kind of raised and flagged, what he said was this, I'm a good Christian guy, and so I'm being careful not to lust. There was a way that he'd been taught to avoid contact with people that he might be attracted to, just in case he ever ended up in this place that Jesus describes here. This is not what Jesus is saying. So to counter some of this, the book offers this beautiful alternative model that absolutely makes sense. There's a possibility that you might notice someone and say there is a woman, and then you might think nothing more of it and go on with your day. There's a possibility you might notice her body, and then you might think nothing more of it and go on with your day. You might find her attractive, and you might think nothing more of it and go on with your day. You might feel tempted to lust after her, or him again, but generally, this is a thing that guys struggle with a little more in the physical sense, and you might think nothing more of it and go on with your day, and all of those things are healthy, normal human behavior that somewhere the church has talked about as toxic and broken. Jesus is not saying that if you find anybody else attractive that you are in danger of breaking the law of Matthew chapter five, verse 28. But he is saying something. And so what is Jesus? saying here. Uh, and there's this fascinating interplay of Greek words, and I, I always believe that these writers choose their words very carefully, so let's just take a brief look uh, at what they say. Jesus uses the word blepo, the word uh, for see. Look in the physical sense is what it means. It means to take something in, to fix your gaze upon. And then he uses a word that actually came up last week. Epithumeo is a, uh, as an extension of the word thumeo. It means to set one's heart upon, to desire to have. It has a concept of ownership too. So, so last week when I said that, that anger was not this, it was not this word thumeo, Jesus says lust is. It's this passion that's aroused for a moment. It's like a storm, a deep desire. And I wanted to figure out a way that we could understand this better and understand where this line is that Jesus seems to draw. And so I thought for a second I'd talk about a different kind of lust. I'd talk about wonder lust. So I'm gonna offer you some pictures and you can just feel how you feel about these different things. These are some places that you might like to go. Man, amazing. Grand Tetons, beautiful camping spot, I'm told. For the introverts out there, a room with rain outside. No one's gonna bother you there. I don't know how they even got there. It looks like it's in the side of a cliff. A delightful little piazza somewhere in Tuscany. 
and a library where you can just read. My dream in life is to be married with kids and live a joyful life with a golden retriever, something we are now doing, but also for someone to build me a library with ladders that slide along the bookshelves and possibly a circular staircase uh, as well. Uh, th- there's this visual here that, that, that makes you say at some point, man, I'd definitely like to go there at some point. Like, that's intriguing to me. And then there's this culture that you may have seen, it's all over the online world, this sense of wanderlust, this sense of like, oh man, I've gotta travel. I've gotta get out there. It's the moment where you start searching the, the prices online. It's the moment where you're desperately desiring to just be somewhere else in a particular place. I was just intrigued by this connection with the word that there's perhaps this idea of wanderlust versus wanderlust. And if you're only just discovering those words are spelt differently, that's fine. The education system failed you. <laughs> to, to wander is this place of contemplation. And I would suggest this is where Jesus' line lands on this subject. There is a movement from attraction. And interestingly with this passage, while, while the natural place we would land is, is the physical attraction, Jesus never says physical attraction. As a generalization, again, men tend to be more attracted by physicality. Women tend to be more attracted by how successful a guy might be, how, how well he might provide for a family, how significant he is, generally. There's this movement from wonder or interest to I wonder what it would be like, lust. There is a moment when attraction becomes I wonder what it would be like lust. I wonder what it would like to be with that person. I wonder what it would be like to be married to that person. I wonder what it would like to be in a bedroom with that person. I wonder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That seems to be the place that Jesus lands as this dividing line between what is normal and what is human and what is, in his mind, a broken way to live. And so there's this question. Why does Jesus address this? Why does he think it's important? Can't it just stay in the mind and never be acted on? And, and it seems like he's saying it in a, in a sense beyond just, I, I just don't want you to end up there. It's not just building a fence. It seems like he has more of a purpose, more of a sense of the, that it might be damaging to you and to I as people. Well, just like last week, when it seemed like Jesus centered his idea on the fact that how we think about a person is potentially indicative of how we value that person. Again, same concept seems to be in play. Jesus' teaching is centered on the idea that how we think about a person is potentially indicative of how we value that person. You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus' language is centered around a concept that might include ownership, that certainly includes desire, but desire to have, desire to get your own way, desire to find your own fulfillment and satisfaction. Another brilliant Oscar Wilde quote, everything in the world is about sex, except for sex. Sex is about power. There's a sense in Jesus' language that lurks under the surface that says some of what's at play here is your desire to be satisfied. Not about anybody else, not about the other person, but it's just about me, or it's just about 
you. In that sense, lust then dehumanizes the other person. What's fascinating to me is this, both a bad reading of Matthew chapter five, verse 28, that leads you to kind of ignore anyone who you might remotely find attractive, and uh, an ignoring of Matthew chapter five, 28, both lead to the same place, to dehumanizing the other person. One leads you to ostracize them, to push them away, to say there's no way I can have a conversation with you of any kind. I recently heard a very famous preacher uh, talk about how he was involved in this moment of temptation. He said, I pulled up to a stoplight, and as I was at the stoplight, a young, attractive woman pulled up next to me and turned and smiled at me. But I didn't take the bait. I didn't take the bait. And then she drove off down a side street, and I didn't take the bait. And, and a thinking person might say, what bait exactly <laughs> did you not take? A friendly person smiled at you, that's not bait. That's not any kind of offer of anything in particular. Had you followed her down the side street, the chances are you would have ended up at her house, and I believe that's a felony in multiple <laughs> states. There's been this understanding of sexuality that says, like, no, no, I've got to ostracize the other person just in case there's any chance that there might be any kind of uh, attraction. And then there's this other dehumanization that turns them into uh, an object. And, and fascinatingly as well, and we don't have time for this, maybe it's a podcast question, or, or almost it does the same to all the other people who aren't stared at who aren't longed for. Not long ago, I was at a wedding with a friend, and we look kind of similar, except he's got better hair than I have, and he's got more chiseled features than I have, and he works out a lot, so he's really trim, and he's about two inches taller than I am as well, and we were stood chatting to each other in this room, and the two serving girls were just getting some stuff ready, and then he walked out, and they went, oh my goodness, did you see that guy that just left? And I went, ouch. <laughs> and then I remembered it was I was married, so it's fine. Uh, but there's this moment of, of not only objectifying the person who is stared at, but also uh, the people that aren't stared at uh, as well. Lust is this dehumanizing thing, according to Jesus. Pope John Paul II said this, there is no dignity when the human dimension is elim elim eliminated from the person. In short, the problem with pornography, a big center of lust, a huge problem societally, again, maybe a podcast question, we don't have time, is not that it shows too much of the person, but that it shows far too little. It shows far too little, because it can't reveal the heart. It can't reveal that human center to a person. Osha says this, in love, the other is important. In lust, you are important, unless you get what you want. And that's the beautiful invite of Jesus, as we'll see, it's this invitation not only uh, to humanize the other person, but to humanize yourself too. Uh, Sylvia Plath says this, but think of the glory of the choice, the choice of being human, that makes a man a man. A cat has no choice. A bee must make honey. There is no godliness there. 
The invitation of Jesus is to be fully human in the sense that yes, there can be attraction, but you can make a decision what you do with your mind. Martin uh, Luther, the, the 16th century writer said this, you can't stop birds flying over your head, but you can stop them building nests in your hair. An interesting <laughs> concept in this subject. Lust dehumanizes the other person. And at its core, it dehumanizes you as well. It turns you into this thing that's subhuman in some ways. Turns you into more animal than human. The beautiful invitation of God was this, that that you are more than an animal. That they require only instinct and have no control. And yet you, humans that you are made to be, you are something more than that. Jesus constantly within the Sermon on the Mount will reference the heart. It's just the Greek word cardia. It literally means the bloody thing that pumps in your body on one level. But, but to him, it also is reflective of the inner desires, the inner person, and says that no, when something happens there, it truly is a damaging thing. Frederick Beekner said that lust is the craving for salt of a man who is dying of thirst. It's dehumanizing because it reveals the the, the emptiness within us and looks for a solution where it cannot be found. Lust, it seems, according to Jesus, dehumanizes us all. And so uh, so Jesus in Matthew gives us a solution, a solution that on the surface is very intimidating. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of the body than for your whole body to go into hell. There's this moment where we read that and say, really, is this? the solution, but remember back to last week. As Jesus is talking through how you might deal with anger, he gives some solutions that that yes, might be obeyed, but are certainly outlandish. He asks that if you remember that someone's in conflict with you, that you walk five days back to your hometown from the place of giving a sacrifice, all to say, I'm sorry, or to ask them to say they're sorry, and then you walk all the way back to Jerusalem and you do your sacrifice, then you walk all the way back home again. He's trying to give this example of just how far you might go to make sure that you don't land in a particular place. And then he ends by saying, it's better for that than for your whole body to go into hell. Now Jesus might hear be talking about an eternal hell. He talks about that other places. But I would suggest he doesn't have to be talking about it here. Because I think you know, if you've been down some of these journeys, that you don't have to wait till you're dead to end up in a place you might call hell. You've been in those places of broken marriages, perhaps, where you say, this feels like hell. You've been in those places of addiction where it's another click on a screen, hoping that somewhere satisfaction comes. You've been in those places of constantly looking for somebody else that might fulfill all of the things that you think you need. You've been in those places where somebody's walked out the door because you didn't match up to that ideal life partner after so many years. You've been through those sleepless nights. You've been through the heartache, the heartbreak. You've been through the struggle with what goes on in your mind and the feeling that that just is torture. I don't think you need to wait 
for eternity to go to feel something that feels like hell. I think we've experienced it. Again, not a theological point about hell, I know. Some of you, you'll go there. We'll talk about that maybe on the podcast. But there's this sense here where Jesus talks about just the trauma of everything that might happen as you go down this journey. And so it leaves us with this question that kind of lurks, which is what should we do? Which is what should we do about this? What should we do about this constant temptation to think particular things, this constant temptation to dream about a different kind of life, perhaps to have this moment of imagination that says, what if I wonder what it would be like to dot, dot, dot. And as I said with anger, I would suggest that the the great question to ask is what untransformed part of me is this revealing? What part, but what untransformed part of me is this revealing? I would suggest the first thing it might reveal is that somewhere there is an emptiness, a lack, a missing piece that you're trying to fulfill with some particular desire and it might not work. Jesus makes two compelling offers all the way through, especially John's gospel. The first is to come to me. Come all you who are weak and heavy laden. Come you who are burdened. Come you who are thirsty. Come to me. And then he makes a second offer. Abide with me. Stay with me. Be with me. Live life with me. And I would suggest that's often the one that we miss. That in those places of emptiness, even when we might say, Jesus, I've come to you and still there's this place of loneliness, still there's this place uh, of emptiness, still there's this thing that I'm constantly looking for and I've looked for solutions to that in in pornography, I've looked to it in relationships, I've looked for it in lust and, and yet it's still empty. And I think to us he says, abide with me. Come to me and stay. Come to me and be with me. And, and the beautiful story, the beautiful narrative of scripture is this, is that, that when you land in those places, you are exactly the sort of person that God might take and say, let me throw my arms around you and let me uh, teach you what actual love is. Let me, let me, let me care for you and, and, and let me see you become everything that you were supposed to become. When we talk about the prodigal son in Luke 15, I think we picture him going off and living life in this quiet little English pub, drinking the occasional pint of cider. And yet, what's described is this, this den of thieves and robbers, this place of lechery, this place uh, of abuse. Uh, he lands in the worst of places. And in the moment of his return, this father throws his arms around him and says, says stay, come and abide with me. And if you find yourself in those places, the, the answer isn't shame. It's to know that you are deeply loved, deeply loved by your father, who sees you as all you can be, who longs to see you transformed. And, and so I would suggest the first offer of Jesus is in emptiness. Choose wholeness in him. Choose wholeness in Jesus. I would suggest the second thing I would say is this in attraction. Choose to be human. Choose to see the other person as a human being who may be attractive to you in that moment, but, but has all of the complications that lurk under the surface of ever, every human being. 90% of affairs, from what I've read, happen when someone sees a person that has the 10% that they long for that their current partner doesn't have. They see this 10% and say, if only I had that, everything would be magical. And then they end up in an affair or a relationship and find out that they only had 30% of the sum total, that the rest of it was more work than they could have ever imagined. And they found another human being 
that was just as broken and hurting as they are. In attraction, choose to be human, choose to have human conversations with people that you find attractive rather than ostracizing them. Choose to see the person you're attracted to as a human being that is made in the image of God. And then finally, there's this seeing thing that Jesus uh, talks about. I'm gonna invite the choir to come back up to get ready to close us, to give us some contemplation space. Jesus, as I say, seems to pick words very carefully. In Mark chapter four, he describes a people as ever seeing, but never perceiving. Both the word they're seeing and the word perceiving both mean to see. But in Greek, there's this big, like the choice of words around some of these things. Here, like see, look, it can mean a whole bunch of things. But here, it's a bit more specific. So Jesus says, you are ever seeing but never perceiving. He uses the word for see, the same one that he uses here to look at someone and to find them attractive. It's the word blepo, to see something physical. And then for perceiving, he uses this word, horeo, which is to see, to perceive with an inward spiritual perception. You might describe one as to look and one as to see. You might take the language that we use regularly now of I see you. What does that mean? It means I don't just see you as an outside person, I see something about your humanity, see something about your struggle. In his language, Jesus, I would suggest intentionally, makes this offer. There's this possibility that you interact with a whole bunch of human beings. And the natural tendency is this, is to just to look. Just to look at them as a physical thing. The invitation of Jesus is to see them as something more than that. So to go back to that Mark phrase, you, you might describe it as this. In Greek it would be just transliterated, ever blepo but never horeo. Always just looking, never really seeing. Ever seeing but never perceiving. And the invitation of Jesus is to something more. John Steinbeck says this in East of Eden. I wonder how many people I have looked at all my life and never really seen, and never really seen. As a third point, I would say this, in conflict, choose to see instead of to look. And as a final piece in Philippians 4, it says this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Jesus, as we wrestle with all that you have made us to be, as we wrestle with our broken human hearts that at times reveal an emptiness, at times reveal an internal conflict, God, would you help us to be the humans that you made us to be, to teach us what human flourishing really is. For those moments, for those of us in the room that find this a deep struggle, would you help us to take away what it is to be part of your kingdom? Would you teach us your ways? For those of us that struggle with any interaction with anyone that we find attractive, would you help us to be human, to see them as a human being? For those of us that would say, we've kind of ignored this because it just felt impossible because I could be attractive to some, attracted to someone who's wearing like full ski clothing and, and sometimes they're wearing less than that. Would you help us 
realize that we can do this, but only because you transform our hearts. For those of us that are seeing all the things going on in the world right now that are tempted in all those ways to, to dehumanize people in all sorts of spheres. For those of us that are deeply wrestling with conflict, with wars that are happening all around us. For those of us that are experiencing what it is to have an enemy, someone who feels against us. Would you help us to take this piece of advice and learn to see them? To see them not as an enemy, but as a person, a human being made in your image. Warped and broken maybe, but redeemable always because you came and gave your life for us. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.